Welcome, everyone. This is John Dupuy again, and I and Dr. Roger Walsh talk with David Reardon, who is a storyteller, a producer, a director, a man of vast experience over long periods of time in dealing with our present realities. In this very powerful conversation, we deal with the main question, is our democracy threatened? And if so, what can be done to save it if we do value it? Stay tuned. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. My name is John Dupuy, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Roger Walsh, and an old comrade in consciousness and arms, David Reardon. And David and I go way back, and I was just showing up for the integral project that was nascent in Boulder, Colorado, with my interest in using integral theory to apply to, to drug addiction and recovery. And David had showed up to be the documentarian, the, the storyteller for that whole movement, did incredible work for years. And David had just finished a, a very powerful documentary tracing a drug addict from the disease to recovery and through all that. So we had immediately, we had a, a place to connect and it just continued from there. And David, you have an amazing backstory and a life. And I'll let you talk about what qualifies you to talk about what we're going to speak about today. And we're very, we're just delighted to have you here. And thank you, brother. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Roger. It's really great to see you guys again with COVID. It, it's, we know it's been isolated, right? I'm used to, you know, we were used to gathering all the time within the integral community and other activities. So this is great that I think we're reconnecting again. So thank you for that. I guess in terms of what we're going to talk about today, which certainly is the power of stories and the power of stories in this moment, in this moment for the last year within Story Studio, we've been tracking this whole question that I never thought we would ask in my lifetime. And that is, is democracy threatened in this country? And we've all been through lots of stuff, late 60s, early 70s. I mean, when I, you know, when you think back on what that was, there was a lot of turmoil, but I don't remember ever questioning in the midst of all of that big change, which if you look at it from an integral standpoint is the move to postmodern from modern, that I ever questioned whether we'd have democracy in this country. But this story started to come up in our narrative analysis about a year ago. And then obviously we've been on it and obviously we just went through a midterm. So there'll be lots to talk about in terms of what was predicted and then actually what is, you know, emerging. But my interest in stories, you know, started as a teenager. I mean, I, like a lot of people, my generation, I wanted to be a rock and roll star because I thought that looked like it was fun. So I ended up, you know, making records for about 10 years and then moved into television and film and then moved into what we called interactive entertainment, which was really the beginning of the game business in the late 80s. And, you know, and ran uh, big production groups at the studios like Disney and Time Warner and so on. And then about 50, which is the classic sort of <laughs> midlife crisis. I sort of woke up to the cultural conditions and I was having this very wonderful but isolated life in Hollywood, 
And I looked out and said, geez, the world is not in great shape. And I wonder as a storyteller, is this something that I could contribute to pushing it in a way to the world that we all you know, want to live in? So that started a whole category of projects. You mentioned one of them, Random One Project that we did for the A&E Networks, the Lost in Socket narrative that was what happened to us doing that show with the two guys you mentioned that were challenged by drugs and homelessness. We put the ocean on Google Earth, which is was fun because it was just a big blue painting at that point. And we got this amazing community of scientists, uh, military people and all that to really look at what's happening in the oceans. But when I came back to, to Boulder, really after doing the television shows, I'm not really clear what I was going to do next. Just through a set of circumstances, I fell into the integral community, which is where I met both of you. And Ken, as we know, is, you know... <laughs> I remember riding up the the elevator to his, to the loft the first time because people wanted me to talk to him. And I'm going, what am I going to talk to? I mean, this is the smartest guy in the world. What I, I've just got these sort of these questions about stories. How is that going to be? And it turned out that we, you know, as Ken does, we share uh, a real interest in the power of stories and how they transform us or how they drive how we feel, what we do, all of those things. And a lot of the time, we don't even realize that that's what's happening. We just we just say, oh, blah, 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 blah. And you go, yeah, but where's that coming from? And you go, well, it's actually, if I really look at it, it's based on this story that I'm telling myself. And those are the most important ones. And then there's the cultural stories as well. So I thought, you know, Integral, the map, can would help me sort my questions out about why we were just preaching to the choir with all of our Save the World work. And, uh, you know, clearly the Integral map, elegantly lays out why that would be in terms of the stages of development and the quads and, you know, all that. So that was 10 years of work, like you said, John, and, and, you know, we did some big conferences. About 2012, we did a conference called What Next? And that was really the, really the beginning point for me where I wanted to look at what are the stories we're telling about the now and the future? Because when I looked at it from a Hollywood perspective, which is where I came from, most of our movies and television, video games now, social media, the stories we tell about the future are mostly dystopian. And yet I was having this experience of interviewing and working with all of you uh, and people around the world that were attracted to Ken's work, where all this amazing work was going on about this next world that we all wanted to live in. But there just didn't seem to be an integrating narrative in all of that that could compete with this idea that we were just descending into, you know, into dystopia, right? And you can still make an argument, particularly as we look at the political situation, that that's, you know, there's a part of that that's still happening. So that's what got me interested when I moved out of Integral Life and Form Story Studio. We really looked at that question, what are the stories we're telling about the now and the future? And then the democracy story surfaced about a year ago, as I said. And we just said, you know, we're really interested in climate change and we're really interested in women's right to choose. We're really interested in all these different subjects. But if we don't have a democracy in this country, then the rest of it sort of doesn't matter for us. I mean, uh, the rest of the world can do what they're going to do. And so we really started to focus on this. And then that's what what has emerged out of all of that is what are the stories we're telling about this question? Is democracy you know, threatened in this country or how could it thrive would be the more positive side of that. And the last thing I'll say about that is that those of us at Story Studio, we we are independents, I mean, politically. We have issues both with the MAGA Republicans and with the Democrats in terms of neither one of them really telling a story or a narrative that we think is going to lead us to the next world. 
So when we look at these things, we look at both sides. And it's easy to see the MAGA story right now because it's so front in the news. And Donald Trump, you know, <laughs> said he's going to, you know, announced he wants to run for president again last night. And we heard that MAGA story again in spades. And the Democrats are sort of celebrating about what happened in the midterms. We can get into all that. But that's the that's the perspective that we take is that neither party seems to be capable of moving us toward the world that we all want to live in. And so we look at both sides and say, look, both of these stories need to evolve and change if we're really going to have the world that we want rather than this dystopian world that we keep saying is where we're headed. So that's probably a little longer than you wanted to hear, but that's the background. No, thank you. Yeah, that's that's great. And I, I just want to emphasize a couple of things you said, David, because your work is essentially identifying and mapping the various stories that our, we as individuals and as a culture are telling and the ways in which they're affecting us. And I just want to emphasize this one of the stories underlying that, which is that our stories are just so incredibly powerful that we we create our our stories both as individuals and as and as cultures and then our stories create us and that they they both they express and solidify our identities our beliefs our values our politics our myths our mores and they become the often un, only partly conscious determinants of our whole ways of looking at the world and looking at ourselves and behaving. And so this just seems incredibly important. And and one of the key things from a developmental perspective is the recognition that for the most part, usually our stories are unexamined. They're just, we, we tell them and we assume, unless we know we're lying, that this is the truth and we don't think to stop and really examine them. And I think... And and yet that's the key one of the key moves from conventional developmental stages to post-conventional. I think you, as I see your work, you're helping us as a culture make that difficult move from conventional blind belief in our stories to a reflective, critical assessment of their value and validity. That just seems incredibly important work. Well, thank you, Roger. And the only thing I would add to that is one of the reasons that personally for me, but then as you look at the culture, is that one of the functions of, of stories is when we're feeling uncomfortable, right? When there's something we just say, I don't know, you know, and there's a lot of that talk going on, particularly since COVID started and just ripped the world apart as we know it. But in the same time, politically, this country, and now we'll just stay on this country, it's happening around the world, but let's just stay on the United States. Um you know, we're also uh, surprised in question. I mean, the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was a shock to most of us that have more progressive thought than that. And we said, how did this happen? How did this country vote this guy who was very clear about who he was uh, to be president of the United States of all things, right? And, you know, and all that. So where we notice, I think when people start to turn, you know, to all right, so what is going on with me? It it usually, like most things, is driven from some sense of uncomfortableness, right? Something's a little bit off, right? So in therapy, as you guys know, 
you know, ultimately, why do you go to a therapist? Well, you go because you have some questions that you want to work through, which can be emotional, psychological, intellectual. I mean, they can be on any sort of level. And one of the first things that therapists usually do when they ask you the question about why are you here, right? (laughs) Why have you come to see me? There's something that's driven you here on this day. And that, I would say, is a story. And the story is, I'm feeling uncomfortable and I'm not sure why. And I'd just like to sort this out, you know, with a professional, right? And that's why we go. And that's, you know, and then ultimately we will look at those stories. The ultimate thing that we always say in this work is that, yes, these stories drive us. They come from deep levels, you know, sometimes. But the great news about stories is that if you don't like the story that's driving you, you can change it. And that's that to me when I, you know, and I had that own my own realization about that. I said, oh, well, this is great, right? Because if the story I'm telling is that I'm comfortable or I'm less than or I'm not capable of whatever, you know, that and that and it doesn't change everything. It doesn't solve everything. But just simply shifting that story a little bit and saying it's OK for me to be comfortable and I want to look into this. That's a powerful moment when you sort of take the power back and make it and said, look, if I'm not happy with what's going on with me or if I look out in the culture, I'm not happy with what's going on out there. Ultimately, we can change the story that is driving that. And that, to me, was the real positive aspect of this work. Beautiful. And what a contribution you're making is helping to identify the cultural stories as they emerge and come to prominence and the way they play out and intersect. And perhaps it'd be valuable just if you could just say very briefly something about how you identify these. I know it's a very complex system you have, but just just to be very briefly say a little bit about how you do how you identify these stories. It's a great question, and I'll try to keep this short. And we can go into it in more detail if people want to later, because it's also evolved over time, right? So when I looked at looked out of the world, like I said, and I said, I'm not happy with the way this is going and what little contribution could I make, you know, to shifting that story about where we're headed. And and to me, when I looked out there, I saw a lot of people doing a lot of research, polls, data driven, you know, vehicles of all sorts. Right. There's no lack of measurement about what seems to be happening, you know, within the culture when you look at it. But I and the team that I have, we we wanted to do something that was unique to us because we're storytellers. We decided to, you know, look at this subjectively, right? So people will say, well, stories are subjective, right? They're just something you make up and then they, maybe they're powerful and driving certain things, but they're not data-driven, right? And you kind of go, that's true. But this these are the two ways that when you look into how do we know what's happening in the culture, that there is the data-driven vehicles like polls or, you know, whatever. And then there's the story we tell about them. That's the subjective part, right? And it's just as valuable, at least to us as storytellers, to understand, even though it's subjective, uh, the stories that are driving that, you know, behavior. So we said, all right, well, then how would we do that? How would we look at the stories that are being told? And the thing that was also changing that we had been reporting on was the way the news was reported. So we're old enough to remember that originally growing up, we had three broadcast networks, right? And they had a half an hour of news every night. And 
not every family, but these were events where families sat around together and actually looked at Walter Cronkite. And as he reported in quotes, the news of the day, right? So that was that half hour. And that was it. I mean, there were no cell phones. There was no cable television. There was no social media. There was nothing. That was the little window into whatever was being you know, told there that we got some information about and had some feeling about, right, as the case may be. David, excuse me, but wasn't there some kind of legal obligation to uh, responsibility about the truth on these three networks, that if you had a public network, you couldn't just lie and say whatever you wanted, you would be held accountable? Well, that's a really good question, John. And it's I'll give you the short answer. We can get into a longer answer if we get to what is happening in the news, because this is one of the things that has significantly changed in the culture is that where we get our news and how we get our news. So back in, in the broadcast day of things, right? And you also have to include newspapers. That's the other one, right? So we all opened up newspapers and, you know, New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, wherever you were, right? There were newspapers and and this half hour of of network television it, it was deemed by the culture by all of us and by the government that there had to be some regulation of that and so even though it was the subjective choice about what stories they were telling right i mean so it wasn't completely objective they chose to tell certain stories during that half hour and by choosing they were you know, they were subjectively poking us in a certain sort of direction. But in the, in broadcast, as in newspapers, what was said about it was that if you were going to say something about anybody, is that you had to have two verifiable sources that supported that position. You couldn't just say, John Dupuy, dot, dot, dot. You could say it, but you also then had to have the backup of saying there are two verifiable sources that that's actually true, right? That was that was the deal. And that is forgotten a lot as we have these very emotional conversations about the First Amendment and, and social media at the, you know, that's all up at the moment, is that I, I look at the younger people, because <laughs> I'm ancient at this point, and they don't remember that, right? They they say, well, we've never regulated speech. And you go, yes, we have. We But we just never did when cable news came in 24-7, which changed everything. And then social media, we have not regulated those things in the same way we did. So it's not like we don't know how to do it. It's just that we haven't done it. And so the question is, is what would be verifiable sources? How would I know that the story that was being told me by anybody was actually had a measure of truth to it as opposed to what we see on social media these days? That was the question. And so, yeah, good question. We there were there were things that said and, and, and I'll just remind everybody of a story is that Dan Rather, who was one of the second generation, you know, major network guys, right, got caught in a story where he was set up by conservative politicals because they didn't like his more liberal leanings. And they fed him a story about George W. Bush, about him not being in the National Guard or whatever claim had been. And Dan and his team jumped into it, told the whole story, and then it turned out that their sources were fake, that they had been gamed. And as a result of that, he was off the air. He went from being from one of the major newscasters in the world to being off the air because even though he hadn't done it intentionally, he had told a story that was false. 
because it didn't the the you know he didn't have backup for it when they really looked at it. So yes, we used to do it, and this is a huge conversation about if we don't like what social media and cable television is creating in terms of stories in the culture, then what would we do about that? And that's a whole subject we can get into if you want. Well, you know, it's it's a huge subject, and and what I've seen is that since everything you mentioned, the world has changed that. On CNN or MSNBC, if you get caught telling lies, you get fired. Fox News, you get promoted. <laughs> you know, so it's not the same. You know, it's not just oh, this this person there is. There seems to be still some grasping of ethics in broadcasting in in the the aforementioned ones, but with with the Fox News and their ilk, there doesn't seem to be any at all, unless they can get sued, and then they, all of a sudden they they change their tune. Yeah. Well, there's, as all things these days, it's a little more complicated than that. Yes, Fox is easy to look at, and the the right-wing media apparatus that includes all those sites. You know, last night, I, I or during the midterms, I always like to switch over to Fox and stay with them as far as long as I can, because the story being told by them about the same facts that are emerging is usually quite different than MSNBC, which is the most progressive. And then CNN has now tried to pull it back to some sort of neutral uh, position. They're trying to reposition themselves. And you can see that in the terms of the stories they're telling and who the anchors are and who they're inviting on to be part of their panels and all of that, right? So it, it even though it's more egregious on Fox, when you look at NBC and CNN, here, here's the phrase that I love, right? Okay, so this is what we just heard. We have no verification this is true. That's what they'll say. We have no verification. We have not verified whatever this is, right? Trump just did something as an example. But we're going to tell you the story anyway, <laughs> right? So in a certain sense, they blow right through it. I mean, they, they go, well, then why didn't you wait till you had verifiable sources if that's who you are before you start talking about it? Because when you get into the story, particularly if I'm charged up about it, right? I forgot what you said at the beginning, that this has not been verified, right? And so there's a version of it on the more progressive side as well. And, and the thing is that cable has always argued that, um, that they don't need regulation like we used to have in broadcast and newspapers. I would have <laughs> fine fault in that. I think they do. And social media obviously has taken this to a whole different level. Yeah. And David, we can get into the the we, we're now into the factors which have allowed a loosening of uh, criteria for what's said in in media of all kinds but but maybe and we that's a whole topic in itself and we'll probably want to come back to but maybe we could you could tell us a little bit about you know the stories that you're seeing now that you feel are really important and you mentioned that uh the, the the threat to democracy. That sounds like a, a major story that you're really paying attention to. Let me put in my two cents there. I'm really concerned about that. When you mention that, it really it really hurts me because I, from what I can see, the answer is absolutely yes. It's mm -hmm. it's threat. I heard data that said that 25% of the folks in the United States wouldn't mind end of democracy and an authoritarian government, as long as it was their, their guy in charge. Right. Right. And since I was an adult, 
I've been toward the progressive end of politics. I can't understand still why we have poor people in a country as wealthy as this. Why do we want to cut down all the trees? Why do we have homeless people filling up our cities? It's like, come on, people. We're wealthy. We can do better than that. But I've been very concerned about the way I've seen the far left going. And it really bothers me as equally the far right. So I'm looking for for a new synthesis that that can honor the conservative values that, that are true, conserve what's good about our culture, no Western civilization, I don't feel is completely evil and should be destroyed. I think it's right. brought many things. On the other end, if something's broke, can't we just fix it, you know, and move toward getting it better? Maybe not all at once, but move toward eliminating poverty and pollution and forestry and water and climate and all these things. Can't we just do something? So... I don't feel at home on either side right now. So I'm kind of a lost soul looking for this new higher ground, this new synthesis, this new thing that I, I start to feel is emerging. And I'm certainly struggling with it myself. Yeah. And you're not alone, John. I mean, there's a very large group of people, the way we look at it, that sit in this area, right? That they can see the the drawbacks of both, you know, if I just say there are two narratives, that's way simplified, but let's just say that without getting into lots of them. But this progressive narrative versus the more MAGA conservative narrative, right? They're definitely two archetypal major stories that are running or that are influencing vast portions of our population, right? But as things are in transition, and this is the thing that I always, this is the value of the integral work to me, was that I sort of had this notion before I came in and really worked with Ken and all of you and the map and so on, that there were different stories being told, but I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was just sort of an instinct of saying, well, I understand I'm a Hollywood storyteller. You tell different stories to different audiences, right? That Yeah, I get that. But the map clearly laid out, in particularly in terms of the stages, this traditional modern and postmodern that that integral claims are is in progress as we speak, that have very different narratives, and the difference between them, if I had to be really simplistic about it, is whatever whatever they're saying within their narrative, who did is who does it actually include, right? So this is one of the confusing things about make America great again, right? that phrase. And, and so you go, well, I don't have any problem with making America great again. I don't. But the question is, who are we making it great for? Right? So when you look at the more traditional story, which tends to be, this is going to be very simplistic, but I guess enough for conversation, tends to be sort of the MAGA story tends to be in these traditional values, right? The, the circle of care that they're talking about does not necessarily include people of color, as an example, or people of different sexual orientation. They're just not included in who they take care of, right? Whereas modern sort of opens that up a little bit more, that's more of a scientific thing and all the rest of it, but it has its own pitfalls, as we've seen with some of their reaction from big tech to all of this. Elon Musk is of late with Twitter. And then you get to postmodern, which loves to say we're inclusive and we, you know, we include everybody and all the rest of it. I, that actually is not true either, right? Because nope. we're now watching postmodern fail to meet the challenges. And then ultimately we claim that we're in the transition to something else. And, and Integral has a very elegant way of laying that out in Ken's work. 
But as I've been out in the wider world, you know, after running in real life for so long, there's a version of that there, you know, with everybody, right? That we're in transition to something else. And as a result of that, the old stories that we were telling are falling away and the new stories have yet to stabilize. That's the very definition of a transition, right? Whether it's personal or whether it's cultural, is that whatever you were doing before is not meeting the challenges of the present. And that, yes, there's new information there, but it hasn't, you know, it hasn't coalesced into some sort of view where you say, ah, okay, this is where I am now. This is from where this, these are the stories that are going to drive my behavior and what I think from, from here on out. So where we see this, this uncertainty that you mentioned, John, that you're feeling, and I am as well, is that with the story that we tell on both sides is that we're more polarized than ever, right? We see this every night. People go, we're more polarized than ever. And you just you can see the midterm elections, and you can say, yes, there wasn't a red wave, but the Democrats barely won the the key battleground states. I mean, they were within percentage points of losing, which they didn't, which we're all happy about that it wasn't the other way, but it was still really minusculely close. So you can say, yes, it's polarized. Look at these two camps and all the rest of it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what? Where we see the hope, and this is because <laughs> that's that story seems hopeless, right? People are just more polarized. They're never going to talk to each other. They're never going to come together into something that we used to fantasize about is that the United States always comes together when it needs to, right? Regardless of you know who you are. And we see this in the polls. And that when you look at the polls and the 10 factors that we look at in terms of what stories are we telling, and these won't be a surprise to anybody. So we look at things like what's going on with voting rights and election certification, which has been a huge one over this last two years leading into this cycle. And that story is still not over in terms of how we deal with that. We look at a woman's right to choose. We look at the culture war, whose story is winning, right? Because you can make an argument that, you know, Trump story in 2016 won. It did. It won, not by much, but it won, right? And he became president, right? So who's winning the cultural battle? And then we look at things like gun reform, we look at climate change, we look at the, there are 10 categories, right? And in each, each category, then we sort of, we rate it as we look at it through this engine. And Roger, I really didn't answer your question. I can go into more detail about how we do this. But ultimately, what we find is that there is agreement by in any poll that you look at, about 65 to 70 percent of Americans generally agree on the principles of democracy that they feel this country should still represent. So as an example, on voting, 65 to 70 percent of Americans think it should be easy to vote. Anybody that wants to vote should be able to do that easily. And now whether you go to a, you know, a polling place like we used to, or you send it in in the mail or whatever, you should just have the ballots mailed out to everybody that is, you know, uh, that is certified and they ought to be able to vote easy. And you can see that in certain states that it is, it's, it's, it's Colorado is a good example of where we sit. You know, it was easy, right? They gave me the ballot. I filled it out, sent it back in, right? But we see in certain red states that there has been an effort to suppress that by the MAGA side because they think they can't win as a result of 
you know, the where it really is. So they now try to constrict who can vote. But there's general agreement about it ought to be easy to vote. Um, women should have the right to choose. And we just saw this again in the midterm elections, right? With the overturn of Roe Ro v. Wade, still 60 to 65%, and this includes conservatives in red states, believe that a woman within reason should have a right to choose, that it shouldn't be the state telling her what she should do with her body, which is what the ruling from the Supreme Court now has given to the state and that the MAGA candidates tend to, you know, say that's what we should be doing. The state should be involved in that decision. Climate change, we should be, you know, we we should be addressing this more than we are, right? So you can just go down those categories. There is a general agreement about what we should be doing. That is a majority of Americans. Now, there is disagreement about how you do it. That's a separate question, right? So I think the economy ought to work this way. Well, how would you do that? Well, there's lots of debate about how to do that. And that's a healthy thing as long as it's within certain parameters. So, so what, what you look at is you say neither party is basically addressing that majority, right? MAGA is basically getting 40 to 45% of it. The Democrats are tending to get about the same amount. And then you have these, in quotes, independents in the middle that flow one way or another, depending on the election, right? So... It, it, this isn't, we're not imagining this, right? There actually is agreement within this country about the principles of democracy that we want to see continue. The problem is, is nobody has figured out yet how to motivate that group that includes moderate conservatives, independents, and moderate liberals, right? That's who makes up that 65% to basically become a political force and basically tell both parties, we're tired of what you're, whatever you're offering is not moving us in the direction that we want to move. And we think we want to get back into this conversation where we have a debate between conservative and liberal principles, but a, a debate based on the facts, not lies, right? And there's a general agreement, but there isn't anybody yet that has been able to pull that together and basically say it's not a third party because the, the odds are against you know doing a third party in this country. But it's a political force that would tell both parties, you need to address the following things in the following way for us to have democracy in this country. That's the hope. Nobody has figured out how to do that yet, including us at the moment. Well, where, where's the hope in all this, David? Well, I I think that that where I I just said where I think the hope is, although I don't know how to get there, nor does anybody else, is that when you ask that question, John, about are we really that polarized? Right. I mean, can I not talk to somebody that is going to vote conservative versus me, maybe voting more progressive or something? And the fact of the matter is you can. I mean, people generally are well, you know, Americans are pretty forgiving of each other. They they will have debates if they're not set up to be, you know, in conflict with each other, which is what goes on on social media. Social media is designed to drive conflict, right? Because that they make more money off of that, which is a whole other story we can get into. So it's there. You know, there, there, there is a strong feeling in a majority of Americans that here are the principles that we want to live by. Now, you got to work all that out. And say, well, what does that mean to voting? What does that mean to women's rights? What does that mean to whatever, you know, the subject that you're going on about? And so far, nobody has been able to sort of organize that so we don't end up 
in every election since, well, I can go back, but certainly since 2016, that the margins of victory or defeat are minuscule by the time you add up all the votes. So Trump in 2016 was elected because in three states, he had 85,000 85, votes difference. And he lost the popular vote. And he lost right. popular vote by a lot, but also Biden. When you look at 2020, when you really look at those numbers, you say if Biden hadn't won Arizona and Georgia, we could have had a different story. It was that close. Yeah. Right? And the midterms just did it again, as much as we know about it right now. Again, in these key battleground states, these Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania, whatever, the ones every election night, <laughs> I said it the other night when Jenny and I were watching, why is it that we come down to Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada every election? And those people are really slow at calendaring their ballots. <laughs> oh, you know, And that's a good thing that they're doing it accurately, right? But we don't know for weeks sometimes, and we still don't know what, what the ultimate outcome of the midterms is going to be precisely. But there it is. I mean, and so so the it's minuscule differences that are driving us one way or another. And, and you know, as you step back from that, you'd like to see this majority, the 65 to 70 percent exercise itself and tell both parties that they need to evolve if we're really going to push forward in a positive direction. And David, one thing I see you doing here, which is really important, is is getting below the surface differences and identifying the commonalities, uh, the underlying core common themes that that underlie these apparent differences. And, and you also made the point that social media, which is such an incredible force in determining uh, and selecting, determining, amplifying certain narratives. And you, as you point out, tragically, the business model is based on on amplifying differences and energizing the limbic <laughs> limbic system to to our mutual well to to a which is a tragedy has been a tragedy for us but you're looking at you're identifying underlying common values and it seems like if we look deeply enough yes there are underlying core common values and you're also pointing to something which I'd love to have you talk more about and that is what are the and we're getting getting a little ahead of ourselves because I'd still like to hear some more about some of the narratives, but since we're into it, what are the characteristics then of healthy healing stories? And it seems to me that that's what you're looking for. And it seems to me there are several things, and you've pointed to some of them. One is they're inclusive, they're not so divisive. A second is there's some kindness and care and compassion and recognizing a mutuality. There's a recognizing of underlying ideals, which can be expressed in very different ways, but at bottom, there are different ideals. And their acknowledgement that people of goodwill can have very different views on something like abortion. And it doesn't mean they're evil or inhuman. And so it seems like healthy healing stories make generous assumptions about people. Love to hear what you're seeing and whether that makes sense. Yes. When we look at the stories and we look at them broadly and just to actually give a little bit of answer to your original question about how do you do this, let me just do a quick thing. So we have a platform that is AI-driven artificial intelligence. And basically what it is, is a newsreader, right? So AI has now sufficiently advanced that it can go out and read text 
And not only does it, can it record it, but it also then can do all kinds of mucking about with what's being said in a variety of ways. So for instance, when we look at a story, we look at the timeline. How long has this story been around, right? Is this a very recent story that just came up that, surprise, surprise, this is something new we've never talked about? Or is it something like the First Amendment, right, that goes back to the founding of this country and actually goes back before that? Because it, the all of that stuff about your right to say what you want, you know, and the government doesn't have right to say not, that goes back to England and even further. So that story, that timeline is like huge. And then you see in that timeline, given this platform that we've got, where are the spikes in activity, which means that there are news articles or broadcasts or now social media posts that at a certain point suddenly light up about something, right? And you see this spike in activity. So it was kind of cruising along, you know, as most change does incrementally. And then all of a sudden, boom, it hits it. Something causes it to spike and become a major conversation within the culture, right? So we look at that. We look at who's involved, who's involved in that conversation, and what are they saying? And from an integral standpoint, we do look at at what level are they speaking from. We can do that within this engine. And then ultimately, the the one of the most important things that we see is how far has this story, whatever it is, scaled? Because if can you give us a specific example of what you're talking about? I mean, what you know that spike in this whole this whole process? Well, give us a story we can relate to. That well, I would. I mean, look, I'll, I'll just pick this one: the abortion story, the right to an abortion. Right has really for 50 years been fairly consistent because we gave those rights were granted under the constitution that a woman had a right to choose, right? And even though there was flack from the opposing forces through all those 50 years about that violates our belief system, whatever that is, we didn't see much of it, right? We It just sort of, if you look at that timeline, the abortion story, it just kind of goes along and there's lots of activity about it. But what spiked it? Well, <laughs> what spiked it was three Supreme Court justices being named to the court that's, that even though they didn't say it in their confirmation hearings, in fact, they sometimes said the opposite, that they wouldn't do this, were there to overturn Roe v. Wade. And as a result of people recognizing that, there was a huge spike, as you can imagine inactivity around that. So how could this possibly happen? How could you take rights away from women? And the other side was saying that right that was granted doesn't exist in the constitution. And so therefore we've always been about sending it back to the states and letting states decide whatever, right? So huge spike and continues, right? So even in both the 2020 election and the midterms, as we saw, One of the reasons why, or at least the initial reasons, we'll know more soon, that there wasn't a red wave, right? The predicted red wave, even by progressives. I mean, when you go back and look at progressive pundits, they were saying this is going to be a horrible night for Democrats, right? For all the reasons. Historically, midterms go that way. Uh, There's certainly the economy is horrible. Inflation is high. Crime is whatever. I mean, you can tell whatever story you want, right? Well, that's what they say. Yeah. Well, that's saying. what they said. And and that was the majority of pundits on all sides, you know, said basically that's what we see is going to happen. This is going to be a big red wave. The the 
MAGA Republicans are going to gain 40 seats in the House. They're going to take over the Senate, blah, 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 all of that. One of the reasons why we think it didn't happen that way, that it was more of a split result, was Roe v. Wade being overturned as it was, um, actually drove a lot of Democrats and women out to vote. And even in predominantly red states where there were initiatives on the ballot about should we include the right to abortion in our state constitution? All of those initiatives won. The answer was yes, we do not want it weaponized or criminalized or not available to women, right? So so that it just kind of cruised along for a while and then it just went you know, through the roof and it became one of the contributing stories to why Democrats did better in the midterms than everybody thought that was one of the that was one of the stories that drove it was that people went out intent on sending a message that they wanted women to have a right to choose within reason yeah. okay so that's clearly one of the one of the major stories that's been been you know as you said spiked dramatically of late i want to come back to the to the story that we touched on but i think I think I'm sure you have much more to say, and John was very passionate about, and that is, is our democracy threatened? Well, I hope that engaged you. It certainly engaged me. Stay tuned for part two with David Reardon and Deep Transformation. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.